Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I am your host, Talea Dendi. Today, our very special guest is Dr. Edward M. Smink. Dr. Smink is here to talk with us today about caregiving. Dr. Edward Smink, PhD, defended his doctoral thesis, Thresholds of Afflictions, The Heroic Journey of Healing at Pacifica Graduate Institute in May of 2010, and he graduated with a PhD in philosophy with an emphasis in depth psychology. His dissertation hallmarks what Dr. Smink considers a sacred trust of his over 40 years of experience in healthcare as a registered nurse, crisis and pastoral counselor, executive leader, facilitator of mission, ethics, spirituality, value, and leadership formation, and a leader and promoter of community health. He served on local, regional, and international committees of value formation in the United States, Australia, Korea, England, Spain, and Italy. Dr. Smink likes to claim that along with his academic credentials, he has learned much as a caregiver from his experience with colleagues who care for others and from those who needed his services. His book, The Soul of Caregiving, A Caregiver's Guide to Healing and Transformation, is an outcome of his dissertation and his contribution to caregivers and the community. He is enthusiastic about being a caregiver and also passionate in reaching out to caregivers who suffer from the symptoms of compassion fatigue. I am so excited to learn more about compassion fatigue and also the soul of caregiving. Dr. Smink, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. 
You have a very extensive background, Dr. Smink. You were a registered nurse, a chaplain, an executive leader, and of course, a caregiver. Dr. Smink, please tell us why you have decided to do this work. I've recognized at an early age that part of me is being a caregiver. And I enjoy so much in reaching out and knowing that I can help a person rediscover and deepen their sense of healing, that they can experience what I call soul care, different than self-care. By soul care, I mean that they're in touch with their inner most sacred space where they know truly that they are themselves. Most of us don't have a sense of honoring and even bowing bowing down before the self that we are. We're made in God's image and likeness. And because of that, there's something very sacred in us. I'm reminded of that wonderful picture in the Sistine Chapel of Adam reaching out, everything within Adam reaching out towards the sacred. And then you see God's hand coming down. And in that moment, he's created. He's a new person. So when I think of healing or transformation, I think of of what is in me that can be like a mirror that helps a person discover the richness of their own selves. And in that sense of being, can they use those inner strengths to cope with healing, to cope with the illness that they may have or the caregiving that they give? Can they find those strengths that protect them from excessive compassion fatigue and excessive burnout? I remember in our last discussion, we talked about the difference. Compassion fatigue has to do with something we love to do. I love being a nurse. I love being a chaplain. I love being an executive leader in healthcare, in helping others rediscover again their own talents. And so that inner part of, of who we are helps us to take care of ourselves. So compassion fatigue is an exhaustion of something we love doing. The difference between compassion fatigue and burnout, burnout is doing the same things we love to do, we're happy in doing it, but the organization we're in or the job we're in doesn't recognize who we are. The human factor is gone. And so we're constantly beating our head against the wall. And no matter what we do, it doesn't shape or change the institution. And so oftentimes in my own case, I had to leave that institution to survive, to be who I am. To stay there would have been self-defeating and, and probably my demise. So that's the difference between burnout and compassion fatigue. So why do I do this work? I retired from my position Oh, maybe 10 years ago. And I said, I don't want to be a couch potato. Mm -hmm. I want to use all the wisdom I have learned at the bedside, all the wisdom I've learned from working collaboratively with other people to reach out to those that are experiencing the symptoms of compassion fatigue or burnout. And I do that because I too experience compassion fatigue and burnout over 30 years ago. So I speak from that place of darkness, of lack of hope, wondering would I ever get through this. And through the compassion of a wonderful counselor 
I reached out against something in me, again, like Adam reached out to God. There's something in us when we're most feeling the lack of God or the lack of brightness or light, there's something in us that sparks us to reach out. And so I did reach out to this wonderful counselor, and he literally saved my life. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't recognize I needed help. In my recent research, I discovered that there's a part of us that wants to get well, but we meet the glass ceiling of the cultural taboos that affect our lives. Would you like me to go to explain them a little bit more? Yes, thank you. What I discovered and what I did not listen to myself was to acknowledge the first taboo is to trust what's going on within yourself. I didn't recognize that because everyone told me what I was going through, that I was crazy. It wasn't crazy. I just didn't have the affirmation. So I didn't trust what was going on in me, and I didn't trust my peers or family members because I thought they would ridicule and shame me. And indeed, they did. Okay. And there's that part of our culture that says we're invincible. We, we do sacred work, but we're not God. That's right. That cultural taboo that says you have to be perfect. You have to have all the answers. The most intelligent person is one that says, I'm not sure of that, let me do research. We don't admit we know everything, because we don't. And pretending we're Superman or Superwoman doesn't work. And the real issue in the first taboo is to ask for help. So the caregiver needs to ask for help. And that's so against, we're so ingrained not to do that. Yeah. We're rugged individualists. That's the culture that we're in. We got to do our best. Now, there's a good to that. We want to do our best. But the shadow side is thinking we can do everything ourselves. So that's the first cultural taboo that we learn to trust ourselves and reach out to others. That's what we do, which is against the cultural taboo. The second taboo is don't talk about your experience. Don't share what's going on. You have to rely only on yourself and who is interested in listening to your story. Well, we all have stories to tell. I have a story to tell. I wrote a book. I have a story to tell about overcoming compassion fatigue and burnout. I have a story about rediscovering who I am as a person. You have a story in the work that you're doing to collect stories to help others. So we all have our stories. And the question is, how do we communicate that? If we learn not to trust, then we're not going to trust someone to share our story with. We're not given the benefit or the affirmation of what we're going through. Now, when you look for someone to help you, and I mentioned that I found this counselor, his name is Leo, that he listened to me. And listening is a skill. It's not only with, with your ears. In fact, there is a Chinese saying, you have to listen with both ears. You have to pay attention. And so he listened. And what happened was I felt I was heard. So that's the antidote to the second taboo, that you can trust someone enough to tell your story, not to seek advice, but to be heard. We don't want advice. 
We just want someone to say, it's okay to hurt. It's okay to feel what you're feeling. And so once we feel heard, then we're able to make appropriate choices and decisions. The third taboo is don't share your emotions. Have a stiff upper lip. Big boys don't cry and big girls are too emotional. They're both wrong because big boys do cry and big girls have emotions and they're all valid. So who do you share your emotions with? And again, most of us are uncomfortable acknowledging what we feel. Working as a caregiver, we're put in situations where we have normal experiences to traumatic events. And traumatic event can be anything that causes us to question or help us understand that it's something very deep and hurting to us. So we have normal experiences to traumatic events, and that's normal, but we're never told our experience is normal. So if I'm working with a patient and the patient dies and we midwife that person to the next realm, that affects us. And we may want to share how that affects us and may bring up issues of other grieving issues. And so one grief issue may bring up another grief issue. So can I share my sadness? If I'm angered over a situation, can I share my anger? When I was going through compassion fatigue and burnout, I never recognized how angry I was at myself for letting myself go so long without seeking help. So I was ready. And my mother used to say, I'm angry enough to chew nails. So, <laughs> don't, and so you can see the force behind that. And I was also angered in how I was misinterpreted by the two people I was working with, the two co-directors I was working with, that they continually dehumanized me in not accepting my gifts and talents. In fact, they even stole my gifts and talents and used them for their own benefit. So those are the three cultural taboos. Don't trust and ask for help. Don't communicate your story so you can be heard. And, and don't share your emotions because emotions are dangerous. Thank you so much, Dr. Sming, for walking through those taboos. They are all very true and I'm sure very relatable to the listeners out there. They've probably felt or experienced one or all of them. To that point, Dr. Smink, based on the clients that you've supported and what you've seen throughout the years, why do you think it's difficult for both caregivers and clients to develop the skills of self-care? It's difficult because, as I said, earlier, we're trained not to do that. We're trained, just think of the doctor, the nurse, the caregiver, the police officer, the first responder, the school educator, the parent who takes care of children or spouses who take care of each other, or the, the adult children who take care of their parents. We're taught that we have to do it ourselves. And so it's considered a sign of weakness. We're not meeting the goals of our job. And so to acknowledge that we need help or that we have to tell our story or that we have to share our emotions is countercultural. And so oftentimes the caregiver may know something's going on, but they say, who's going to listen to me? And will my husband or wife or spouse Will 
our best friend, will they really listen to me or will they give me advice? So the taboos were recently broken with the pandemic where nurses and doctors and therapists went out on the streets and said, we need help. They broke the cultural taboo and they were on television and radio and said, we need more help. We need assistance. We need to get the message out. That broke the taboo. So it's okay to allow yourself to be human. Yes. We're not perfect. And again, we're not God. We have limitations and boundaries. And one of the skills you learn is called preventive resilience, in which you're able to learn how to acknowledge something's going on, but at the same time, create the boundary that you're not sucked up into it. I could tell you a story about being in a patient conference with a neurologist and this woman whose daughter had a massive bleed in her brain. Neurologists thought that the best thing is to wait until the bleed stops. And another opinion is that you can operate right away. So the mother said, no, let's operate right away. And so the doctor said, fine, I'll get a another consultant, and what happened was the patient was discharged to another hospital so she could have the surgery. She comes back a few weeks later with the daughter, and I'm doing rounds, I go visit, and she says, do you remember me? And for a moment, I didn't, but then once I recognized, and then she went on a tirade about the neurologist, and here's her daughter now in rehab, and I said to her, I remember being there with her, and she was very helpful to get a consultant. That was like pouring kerosene on a fire. She became very vitriolic, and she spewed all that anger on me. I remember leaving the room. I don't remember what I said, but I remember going out of the door, across the yard, and into the main hospital going up to the fifth floor. And the social worker there it was one of my friends. And she said, Edward, what happened to you? I said, don't say a word. I have to scrape all this murder off of me. It wasn't about me. Yeah. It was about a mother whose 30-something-year-old daughter was handicapped because of an inherited brain bleed because of one of her veins that burst. So what you have to learn is the story isn't about you. The story is about being firm, but at the same time, listening enough to hear what's going on. And that, that's a real skill and not to take it personally. It wasn't about me. It was about her anger over the situation. And what happens oftentimes when we're ill, like a person discovers they have cancer or the spouse reacting to that or the caregiver, we say, what have I done to deserve this? I'm being punished by God. That comes up all the time. It does. And I did a workshop, a seminar once on that. I'm saying, is that the God you want to believe? The God who's vitriolic, who's after you, who wants to get you? Or does illness just happen? And if illness just happens, then is there a God that can be with us to help us cope with that illness? That's a great point, Dr. Smink, because you believe that caregiving is a spiritual practice. So that ties into what you're talking about now, actually. 
We often forget when we say put the patient first, we often forget that sometimes we don't feel like putting the patient first. Sometimes we're having a bad hair day. And <laughs> so there's a part of us that has to push all of that aside so that we can be open to the patient that we're dealing with. And I call that a sense of hospitality. Hospitality is an attitude of welcoming. So if I'm a caregiver, whether I'm the spouse or an outside caregiver, I have to create the space to be open to welcome the stranger, the person that I'm taking care of. So I'm using the stranger in the broadest way. It could be a husband or wife or a spouse or a child, but we know them, but we know them in the way that they are now because of the illness. So the first attitude is to welcome. The second attitude of hospitality is to build a relationship with them, to listen to their story, to try to understand or to walk in their moccasins, as the Native Americans say, I walked in his or her moccasins. So you build a relationship. The third aspect of hospitality, which I learned in doing my book, and this is mentioned in the book, there's a chapter on hospitality. The third attitude is to say, what have I learned from this experience? And that's what most of us don't do. So you asked earlier, what can we do to help? One of the things we can do is to pause and reflect. So we may not be able to do it right away, but we may have a moment to write down an insight we had, and then later to spend the time. What, what has this experience with this client or patient or spouse or child that I've had that has helped me? When I talk to physicians or nurses or therapists and ask, are you a better person because of your work with those who are ill? They all say yes. So they acknowledge that there's a growth factor, but what they don't do and what I didn't do earlier was to spend the time to reflect on that. It's hard to do that, I think, because just trying to handle all of these things and then finally, when you get a breath of fresh air, for some people, they don't even want to think about it anymore. So I made it through that and on to the next thing. Well, right there is the attitude. I have to be go boom. Yes. And what I've learned, and I had to learn it because when you experience burnout, you can't go to the next thing. So I had to learn to pause and stay with what was going on. So there may be a moment where in your activity with this particular person that it, it makes you want to cry. And you, you can say to the other person, I'm just moved to cry because of our experience. You can be honest and say that. So these pauses stop the merry-go-round of being a hamster. Stop the world I want to get off from in this hamster wheel. The only thing that stops, I got to get it done, I got to get it done. And I oftentimes fall into that. Yes, it's And easy. then I, I catch myself and then I say, what can I do to stop this merry-go-round? And what I do is I pause and I remember sharing with you another time that when I had burnout, I wanted to do, I was young and energetic and have a, had a deep faith. And I said, I want to do what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. 
And he said, the Holy Spirit wants you to do what's the easiest thing to do. Yes. So when I get overwhelmed and I feel overwhelmed, see, that can be itself a reminder to say, what's the easiest thing to do? The easiest thing to do is take five minutes and go get a drink or take five minutes or 10 minutes and go sit down and just be quiet. When we're overwhelmed, we think, and again, it's that I got to do, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. What happens if I got to do can wait till tomorrow? See, so we can learn to pace ourselves and realize that when I wake up in the morning and I'm getting ready to go, I may have 10 things I want to do. And I go, okay. And at the end of the day, I find I only did two. Two is enough. Why do I overwhelm myself and thinking I can do 10 when all I, in reality, only could do two? Absolutely. That's so true. Dr. Smink, in one of our previous conversations, you had also shared something with me, and I just thought it was just brilliant because we don't really think like this sometimes. You said if you get into a situation where you're really overwhelmed, you have all these things to do, ask what's the easiest thing I can do right now and just do the thing that's the easiest. And there you go. You have something crossed off your list. It has worked. It works for me. Leo taught me this 30 years ago, and 30 years later, I still use it. It gets me to a deeper place within myself where I'm actually patting myself on the back for what I do instead of just getting caught up in this. And so when we say that caregiving is a spiritual practice, practice has to do with creating those skills. It's a practice. What's spiritual about it is because we're dealing with people and we're helping in the mystery of illness, healing, and death. And that's the sacred endeavor. When I did my dissertation, that was my conclusion that healthcare is a spiritual practice. I could not agree more. You use the word mystery and I believe that's so true because a lot of times we don't know what the outcome is going to be in those situations. And so I think that is a great way to describe it. Dr. Smig, what advice do you have for caregivers that are caring for people with cancer? Because that adds an extra layer and that can add a lot more stress, of course, more doctor's appointments, talking to the insurance companies, all of those things. What advice do you have for those caregivers? I agree with you that it does add another layer. Another layer of, as soon as you say cancer, cancer equals immobility and death. And so right away, the person is confronted with that reality. I remember my sister taking my mother to the doctor. She had breast cancer and the doctor was explaining everything. And she asked my mother, do you have any questions? And my mother didn't say anything. And my sister said to her, mom, do you have any questions? And she didn't answer. She left the room and she was sitting there, but she left the room in the sense that she just blanked out. And my sister had to reawaken her to the reality. And she had surgery and she lived 10 more years after that. Wonderful. And she was 75 when this happened. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. So, yeah. That's pretty common, Dr. Smink, when people initially hear those words. Early in the beginning, a lot of people, they just freeze trying to deal with 
hearing those words and everything that comes along with it. And it can bring a lot of grief, Dr. Smink, as you probably know. Would you please share with us those four stages of grief and how people can best work through them? I like the grief work of Dr. Worden, and he talks about the first task is to acknowledge what is happening. I know of a woman who married this wealthy man, and he died suddenly, and she closed off her house, and she lived as a hermit in the house for 40 years before she died. She just stopped living. So the first step he he suggests is to acknowledge, yes, I have cancer. So that scares the heck out of me. I don't like it. Is God punishing me? But that's what it is. I'm going to welcome the cancer. Second is to deal with the emotions of the cancer. It makes me feel out of control, helpless, sad, angry, resentful. I don't like it. Who does like it? And so to acknowledge that what I'm feeling. And then the next step is to put all your energies and effort into helping others. There's a story of people whose children have died and they dedicated their lives to work with organizations to help children. So you start moving towards something. Maybe the person who has cancer can think of how he or she can help their spouse or caregiver, something very simple. And then the fourth stage of grieving is to be totally involved in and to let go of what the real grief is and to be dedicated. Like if I have cancer, I'm going to be dedicated to do my best to live. I'm going to do my best to find out what can be done. What are the modern tools available, technologies available? I'm not going to fall into being a victim. Yes. I think that's so important is trying not to become the victim because I think that creates this whole other extra weight of heaviness that we really don't need in those situations. It really does a number on your mindset too once you adapt and welcome that victim mindset. And we could all have our self-pity party. Maybe the caregiver says, we're going to have a party today. We're going to we're going to have a self-pity party because I feel like you know what. Yeah. And, Let's and, get it out the way. <laughs> and I know you feel that way, too. Yeah. I can tell you another story of a client I had that she was the belle of the ball. She loved to sing and play the piano and she loved to take trips to Las Vegas. And she was a moderate drinker. So she loved her whiskey. <laughs> and I was the hospice chaplain. And I called her and asked to visit her. And she said, oh, no, not today. Not today. I feel terrible. Call me tomorrow. So I, call, I called her the next day and I said, can I come over? And she said, yes. And she said, I was so black yesterday. And I felt, excuse the expression, shitty. And I said, without batting an eyelash, I started singing because I knew her. I feel shitty, or so shitty, I feel shitty and witty. And she burst into laughter. And she told me that she spoke with her children yesterday, and they would not accept the fact that she was dying. And so I said, can I ask, can I help? And she said, yes, would you speak to them? So we arranged a meeting, and I spoke with them. And that was a help to her 
to be able to acknowledge what she wanted to be done, but she didn't have the energy or strength to deal with the three of them. So I was able to support them. So a caregiver can do that also to support the family. That's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really an easy way that you were able to step in and provide that assistance. So thank you so much. One thing I want to talk about, Dr. Smink, is that many caregivers are family members and they have to quit their jobs to care for their loved ones. Do you know of any programs or resources available to support caregivers? Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I know there are, like the American Cancer Society, there's many organizations that are there that they could seek help for. They could also find ways where maybe they could ask their siblings to help. We're taking care of mom and I need your help. I can't financially do this myself. There may be ways where a person can work, but have a sitter during the day. But it depends on where they are. If their mother is living in Florida and she lives in Wyoming, she has to go there. So I would suggest finding through their doctor a social worker and then being able to look at all the resources that might be there to help. Okay, thank you. Dr. Samik, before we start to wrap up here, we touched on your book a little bit earlier, The Soul of Caregiving, A Caregiver's Guide to Healing and Transformation. Please tell us more about it and what can the readers take away from it? The main thing that readers can take away is to know that it's not a how-to-do book. It's a book in which you are confronted with different stories and vignettes, and my hope is that will inspire you to reflect on your own experiences. And when you reflect on your own experiences, that's part of the healing process. You're able to give it a name and say, gee, I had the same experience. One of the benefits of group counseling is that you may not be able to talk about something, but someone else does. And when they talk about it, you go, I have the same experience. So in the book, after each chapter, there are pages of notes, questions, and places to write your reflections. So it's a book of reflection. When you're able to, as you read something, my suggestion is don't underline it to say, I got to remember that. But as you read something and it inspires and pulls out an insight, write the insight down. Great point. Because the insight will help you understand your own process. So I wrote the book as a reflective book so another could get in touch with those interior values and instincts, which I call your soul, that inspiring, that place deep within you where you and the sacred meet. And when you're there, you're able to make appropriate choices and decisions. Dilemma of seeking help. There's a chapter on burnout and compassion fatigue. There's a chapter on reflection. There's a chapter on the difference between the right brain and the left brain. There's a chapter on being a wounded healer. See, the ancients recognized they were not gods. So they recognized they had limitations. And at the same time, they recognized that they were wounded. Wounded meaning that they did not have all the answers. So we, as 
caregivers don't have all the answers. And what happens in our work with the one who's sick, they remind us of those areas in our own life that need to be looked at. So that's, again, the other spiritual part of caregiving, that if I tend to be impatient and I'm working with a person that requires a lot of patience, they're teaching me how to be patient. Absolutely. So that's the other factor. And to allow ourselves to be open to those insights so that we are all wounded healers. And it simply means that we're not perfect. It simply means we're growing. It simply means that we have boundaries and limitations. And there's a woundedness in us that yearns to seek wholeness. You did a great job summarizing what people can expect from the book, and you did go into detail on some of the chapters, so that's very helpful. Where can people find your book? They can find the book on Amazon.com, or they could go to my website, which is soulofcaregiving.com, and they could order an autograph book for me. Great. Dr. Smink, are you on any social media platforms that you'd like to share? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Those are the three. And Twitter. Those are the ones I'm on. Okay, great. Dr. Smeek, I will share the link to your website and your social media handles in the listen notes so that people can find you and look you up if they have questions or they just want to connect with you on social media. Thank you. Before we end, Dr. Smeek, I'd like to ask my guests two questions. The first one is, what is something that you've learned in life that you would like to share with the listeners, if you haven't already? (laughs) I was just going to say that. What I've learned in life is to pace myself. Okay. That I am a creature of God. I am not God. And I learned to do what's the easiest thing every morning I ask myself. What's the easiest thing I need to do? Thank you. Since you've shared that with me, that's what I reflect back to when I start to feel overwhelmed. And I want to thank you for sharing that because it has helped. Now that's my new go-to thing. My final question, Dr. Smink, is what is next for you? My hope is that I can continue to be available to those that are experiencing compassion fatigue and burnout. I'm doing blogs like this one. I'm also seeking speaking engagements, and so I'm open to any organization that needs a speaker. I also do groups where I can come to an area and work with leadership groups on self-care or develop seminars, and I'm developing an online course. So those are the things I'm doing besides taking care of myself and enjoying cooking and gardening and traveling. Wonderful. Have you been able to get out and start traveling? We, my partner and I were planning a trip to Mexico in September, but we've canceled that because he broke his hip. We're planning something in December. He's doing well. Okay, good. I know that you're handling the caregiver role well, and just because you have so much knowledge and wisdom, and I hope your trip coming up in December goes really well also. I want to thank you, Dr. Smeek, for joining us today, for sharing all your wisdom, sharing some relatable stories with us. It has been a pleasure talking with you. It has been a pleasure also in sharing this discussion. It was very soulful. 
Thank you, Dr. Smink. Before we end today, I'd like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.